Hello and welcome to the ADHD Mums podcast. I'm your host Jane and I'm here to let you know you are not alone. This is a safe place where we can talk openly about our struggles with having ADHD, being a mum and dealing with life a little outside the box. We are real people with real stories who want to be able to laugh, confine and strive to be better than what we were yesterday. My name is Jane McBadden. I'm a 36-year-old mother of three who was diagnosed with ADHD a little over a year ago. I'm here to help you live out your full potential with a diagnosis or without one. I am passionate about helping others take back their life and having a great time while doing so. On this show, you can expect to laugh, hear vulnerable discussions and learn why things are the way they are for mums with ADHD. No two humans are the same, no two diagnoses are the same, and no two stories are the same. It's something that feels really personal and we as mums seem to find a way to put pressure on ourselves to be perfect, to work in a great job that we get paid well for and are passionate about, have a clean, tidy home and well-mannered, obedient children, to have it all. Can we just drop the expectations? There's no way that that's possible. We have a lot to learn and a lot to look forward to on this podcast, so let's go. Welcome to part one of the Coffee Dates Chat with Chantel. We chat about anything and everything that comes into our head completely unscripted. So welcome, Chantel. Thank you so much, Jane. So Chantel, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am now 39. I was diagnosed at 38. I have two children who are both neurodiverse with multiple diagnoses and I am a nurse. I have had a very colourful career. So, Chantel, can you tell us why you're here today and why you'd like to share your story? So, there is a huge need for people to be educated about what ADHD looks like full stop and then in women (laughs) and in children. And there's not enough information out there from people who are living it and although it's difficult to put yourself out there you know you've got to make the noise for people to hear it and I wanted to be a part of the noise we, yeah we can't expect people to understand if we're not prepared to educate yeah absolutely we hear a lot of people have sent messages in about how they felt about being diagnosed so late and the grief around their life could have been different if they had have known or that feeling of there's something wrong with me, the low self-esteem that goes along, whereas it's now my brain works differently and that's okay. And I think you're right, if we aren't willing to speak up, then how can we expect change? Exactly right. And I had a conversation with my GP about three weeks ago and he said, how are you traveling with the psychiatrist and because he'd had a letter from them and he said with your diagnosis and he's been my GP for you know six years he's wonderful and we've got a great relationship and I said you know what I don't hate myself anymore (laughs) when things fall apart because now I understand why and I can my I look at it differently you know how could I have 
maybe met my needs a little bit better to then navigate that situation with it to generate a more positive outcome. And he said, that is so profound. I have never thought of that for my patients. And so that self-loathing, I think, is such an enormous element that is not spoken about. And it is quite often joked about like or they have ADHD so they're crazy or they're all over the place or they're you know they're always busy or they've got 7,000 things on and they've got lists or they've got but there's not a lot of talk about the shame or that this that self-loathing and the you know lack of self-esteem that happens it's only the outward presentation that that a lot of people see or discuss or talk about so you know, I just thought that was really interesting. He's an incredible GP who has been a GP for a number of years. And for him to say, I've never even thought of that aspect, I thought was really quite um, surprising. I think what you've spoken about with shame, self-hatred and loathing is so taboo and unspoken about. And it is absolutely, I couldn't agree with you anymore. How do you feel with a preteen daughter do you have feel a sense of making it better for her and proving it or is it just so emotionally triggering it's hard to even hear about? How do you feel about it? Sorry, I'm tearing up already. That's a terrible start. It is something that I am very aware of with my daughter. I want her to see the positive in change or something that could have been a perceived problem so highlighting those positive experiences for her and making that the focus and we do this across all areas of our life from if the breakfast cereal spilt to a situation in the classroom or something that has maybe happened one of her activities and we break it down because I don't want her to harbour that sense of shame or disappointment in herself if something hasn't gone the way she thought it should, which is a dangerous word in our house. We don't like to use it. And we spend a lot of time challenging the status quo in our house why do people want it like this why do they think that is the only way how else could we do it different is that have we actually just unlocked a new level at lifing we spend a lot of time doing that because I am so consciously aware of when nobody highlights that in your life because it wasn't for me growing up that you just always feel like you're wrong and you don't fit and it's uncomfortable how what led you to to actually investigate your adhd so my son was diagnosed when he was four and a half he had at that point what i understood to be the presentation of boys with ADHD from about two till four 
every time I asked a child community health nurse or the doctor or some expressed a concern and he was my second child, I wasn't new to mum life, but I was new to boy mum life, which is entirely different. And I'd express a concern and they'd say, he's just a boy. This is, boys are different. They're just different. And I went into a meeting at his daycare and they said, we can't have him here anymore. We can't support his behavior. And I thought, okay, this is a real problem. So I followed that process and he was diagnosed at four and a half and filling in all of that, there's multiple questionnaires. And I, I thought, oh, Henry doesn't do these things, but you know, there's some of them here that Millie does. So he was four and a half at that time. Millie was six and a half. She was in grade one. She had always been a very studious child, loved school, very good listener, all of those things, never on the radar for the teachers at all. And every day from grade two, the bell would go, she would step outside that classroom and she would be a flood of tears. So I started talking to the teacher and then I had a, happened to have a meeting with the paediatrician for Henry and I mentioned this to him and he said, oh, well, you know, let's, let's do some, go through some diagnostic criteria forms. I'll send them to you. And I was filling in these forms thinking, oh, yeah, that's Millie. That was me as a child. <laughs> you know, Things that really stood out were like, there's only really one friend at a time. So when I took that information back to the paediatrician and had a discussion with him, I said to him, what is the genetic link or what is the percentage of mum and dad and how does this all work? And he gave me that information and I sat on that. I really sat on that for a number of years. It was probably about three years. and. Then it was, I really started to think about, I was investing a lot of time and energy into the children because we knew that early intervention was really critical to supporting them ongoing. And I was trying to understand Millie and Henry's different presentations and how to support the two of them because they have very, they have the same diagnosis, exactly the same diagnosis, but very different presentations and very different needs. And then it was through that process I started to realise how similar Millie and I were and if I gave myself the same adjustments that I gave to Millie, then it was actually very helpful. So I had gone through, I was a solo parent for a, quite a number of years and I had gone through a bit of a tricky time with you know, post-study COVID and I was really not in a great place and I thought I really need some help and I actually rang the psychology centre that Millie goes to and said to them I'm actually really struggling I need some help so I met with a psychologist and thank goodness we clicked <laughs> I was really nervous about not having a therapeutic connection with them quickly because I knew if I didn't I would just opt out of this process altogether because it was too hard but I did and 
said to him, I had just a complete overwhelming breakdown of everything is hard. I know logically I understand why it's hard, but I cannot manage this at all. And I don't know why, but I need to fix it and I don't know how. And I explained to him, you know, I'm pretty certain there's there's some kind of diagnosis here. I don't even know how to navigate this. Help me. And so we he did some pre-assessments and they came out glaringly obvious for, again, multiple diagnoses. I knew that I needed to follow through with a psychiatrist because I knew how impactful medication had been for my son. I'd seen it. Medicating or starting Henry on medication was probably the most difficult decision I had ever made as a parent. And then when I really thought about it with and had been presented with all this information with the psychologist, I needed medication to be able to manage our life and to be able to enjoy life and not have um, the shame because I was just constantly trying to get things done and going around in circles <laughs> all the time. So I followed through on the psychiatrist referral process and started medication. That whole sentence was about four months of work. So it sounds really easy when I just throw it out there. I followed the psychiatrist process and you know followed through with that and started medication, but that was four months and there were so many ups and downs in that. Four months is actually quite short these days. You know, a lot of people are waiting a lot longer than that. And that process can be horrendous. I was really persistent and I did a, made a lot of phone calls and did a lot of groundwork and there was also a point that I realised if I, if I don't put myself on the wait list or I don't do this now, then I'm going to be months and months behind and I think sometimes people can get so caught up in wanting to get the earliest appointment that they don't do that and then, you know, the next week or the next two weeks go past and they finally get back to that and it's already two months in front. I, yeah, I think it was, it wasn't any longer than, than four months, but I really feel for the receptionist of psychiatrists at the moment, I know it's tough. It's tough for people really needing medication. And I think the changes in terms of GPs being able to prescribe and working with psychiatrists is going to provide a huge amount of relief for psychiatrists being able to take on new patients because they're not needing to fill up their appointment books with ongoing regular appointments for managing medications. Yeah, I agree. I also have always had a bit of a laugh because I understand that stimulants such as Ritalin are controlled substances. So obviously they need to be highly regulated. I totally understand that. But you've got a group of people that can't remember to take it. So you have to be aware of how stupid that is because these people that are desperate to have it, 
only ever take half the dose anyway because they can't remember what they're doing. So I've never used my whole script, ever. The really interesting thing I found when I started and the psychiatrist that I see, he is wonderful and very knowledgeable, but the irony was really lost on me. So I went in and he said, okay, we're going to start your dose on this and it's four tablets a day. And I was like, okay, that's fine. No worries. I can manage that. I've set four alarm reminders in my phone for the times I need to have the medication. Four times a day, I have to do something. I am lucky if I committed to remembering or if I the alarm went off on my phone and I was driving in the car, did I actually have any Ritalin with me or is it in the pillbox at home that I have very carefully put a tablet in each four times a day, my little Monday to Sunday spot so I don't forget. So they're very organised but they're not with me. So then I'm unmedicated <laughs> for that amount of time. And I said, I do remember saying to him, at my next appointment, like four times a day is a lot to ask me to do something if I am struggling to do it once. And this is not something, and this is something that I want and need to do. And I can't do it four times a day. (laughs) But then Chantel add as well, you've got two children who may or may not be medicated. So if you've got If a lot of us have children that also need medication, so we have to remember three or four tablets a day, whatever we're on, we have to remember our kids, we have to pack it in the lunch, remind the teacher, check on the symptoms, how are they feeling? Like that's a lot of extra stuff for a mum. You've just listed you can barely remember your own. I mean, and I just think accessibility has to be easy for us. Come on, give us a chance, right? Like we're just trying to get what we need, but let's make it harder because yeah, you know these ADHD mums that are just trying to live with their children clearly the ones that you need to worry about like it's so ridiculous if you think about it that way and the other thing I was going to say as well is I'll be honest I was one of those people before I was diagnosed that always said I would never medicate my kids oh no my kids, I wouldn't do that. You need to do diet and lifestyle changes. Like how snobby or I don't even know if snobby is the right word, right? But I'm just there on my high horse having no idea about what these people are going through, right? And it was only when I took medication myself that I've actually gone, okay, well, you know what? Why let why let your child struggle? And obviously there's people listening that everyone has different point of view, of course, right? But Mm -hmm. I do think it's important to try the medication yourself if you do have ADHD because a lot of people, there's two ways of looking at it. One of it is I need this medication. If my child has anything else wrong with them physically, we would treat it. So you should go ahead and at least try medication with your children. That's one way to think of it. And I'm just listing the Facebook point of views that I read. And then there's the other people that say it changes your child's personality, it dulls them down and it can maybe not be helpful and the side effects. And I understand both completely, but I did want to highlight I was one of those people that said I wouldn't medicate until I tried it myself and then I actually saw things differently. So whether whatever your point of view is, it's not about that, but I do think it's important to note that when you actually medicate yourself Sometimes it can change your perspective. 
Absolutely. And I think it's also important for parents out there to know that it's actually not as rigid as you're either going to medicate or you're not. You can actually sit somewhere in between and try it and stop it or change it. I think have encouraging people to have the conversations with their GP or their pediatrician or their, you know, it is a really tough decision to make. It was the hardest parenting decision to date that I have ever had to make because I was of the same view and it was a very uneducated opinion that I wasn't going to medicate my children. I was going to try all these other things first and even then if I tried all of those things I was really not on board with medicating. I think it's really important to note that I am still of the group of people that if I don't need to take any medication, I'm not taking it. You know, if I have a headache, I'm not reaching for Panadol straight away. You know, have I drank enough? Have I eaten? Have I slept? You know, can I exercise? You know, what what is the reason? So I am I am in that kind of group of people, I think, anyway. So that typically that didn't help the opinion or the uneducated opinion of I'm just not medicating, I'm not about it. And that made it really difficult because I also had nobody saying to me, it's not as rigid as that. You can actually, while you're thinking about if this is something you want to do, you can actually try it and then stop it if you don't like it. He's not going to fall apart and crumble into a, a puddle of bricks you know he 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 will be okay and it's managing and understanding the medication but also understanding what is happening cognitively and when you have that information it's really easy to understand why medication works and I saw it change his life and I was at a point where I, I really needed to change something because I wasn't coping, I wasn't managing and that that's really what kicked off this process and I had previously, you know, once I'd had children been diagnosed with postnatal depression after my son and Millie was a very tricky baby. So if I was tired or stressed or overwhelmed at that point, Everybody in my circle, GP included, was all, oh, you're exhausted because you're a new mum. Full stop. That was what that was. And then when I had Henry, you're exhausted, you're a new mum and you've got a toddler. You're And there's all this information out there of you shouldn't feel like this. If you feel, you know, coming back to that self-worth and self-loathing. So if you feel like you're not a good mum, talk to your friends. If you talk to your GP. So you do that and then they go, oh, you have a postnatal depression sense because you've just had a baby and this is real. They I was put on antidepressants at that point. And I found no difference. I also struggled to take them regularly. <laughs> so I I knew I couldn't expect a different result if I wasn't taking them regularly. What I should also mention While I was studying, I actually, in the middle of COVID, again, a lot going on, I did engage a psychologist 
who had diagnosed me with OCD and sent me to a psychiatrist. I feel like I had blocked out this time in my life because it was actually really traumatic because this is not the first time that I've forgot it when people have asked me about my diagnosis journey. So I did see a psychiatrist. He said to me that it was very clear that I was emotionally unstable, was his words, and that I would benefit from antidepressants. I wasn't happy with that. I didn't build any therapeutic relationship with him. I felt like he didn't listen to me, but again, I felt like I had no choice but to follow this through. I needed help. So I committed to the titration of the medication and having the nursing knowledge I did, I knew that I really should be seeing at a certain titration and at a certain point of time, seeing some real effects and I saw nothing. And again, I think that's a really important part for mums to be aware of. If you have been put on antidepressants and you feel like nothing is changing, go back to the prescriber and tell them because sure, you might be a tired mum, but that does not mean they shouldn't be looking at you holistically. You know, how are things for you as a kid? Talk to me about your jobs and maybe they're going to be picking up some of those red flags for a diagnosis because, you know, and I think so often as mums, we don't have time to reflect on, oh, do I feel, is this medication working? Do I feel better today? What's happening? It just comes into this big ball of I'm either not coping very well or I am coping well. And if you're on antidepressants and still feeling all of those things you were feeling before you started the medication, it's not you, it's the medication, not the right one. We don't hear that enough and we have, we're so busy looking after everybody else that there's almost no one advocating for us. And I think that is what, is the pull that I found to your podcast was, you know, I want, I want to make some noise here because there's not enough in this space. There's not a lot of people advocating for the mums in this space. Oh, I really appreciate that. And I think that really resonates. I don't want to go off topic, but I'm going to slightly. I think social media in the past has been a little negative with enjoy the moment because it's going to be over soon. So let's say, for example, you're waiting for your kid to do a poo on the toilet and you just want to check out for a minute. So you go on Instagram and all you see is women enjoying the moment and don't worry, it'll pass you by too quickly. And like that where you have to feel grateful for every moment, right? I actually think that's changing. I really like the podcast Beyond the Likes with Amy Jared. If anyone has not listened to it or gone on the Instagram, I love her. What I love about her is she has three pretty crazy looking children and she is really real about how it actually looks, her terrible days, her good days, and she really makes light of life and it's not in a be grateful way. It's a roller coaster. Some days she's grateful, some days she hates it. And she's very open about that. And she's got a pretty good following. And I think that's changed a little bit in terms of expectations because you're right, for women, what is it like we've got a 10-year period that if we're just tired and exhausted and it's just because we're a mum, 
is that okay that all the mums out there mm. are just feeling like shit and then we just say, oh, that's mum life? Like what is that about? I just think that's crap. I think that's absolute crap. I agree. I really, when people talk about, you know, you have one life and you're like, okay, I have one life. What the fuck? We're feeling like shit for 10 years. <laughs> How does this work? You know, I just be tired and look after everyone and, but don't forget to enjoy life and cook nutritious meals and manage the homework and do sight words every day. Like I said to my son's teacher, actually it was the principal two weeks because we have moved house, moved areas. So we are in the, this year has been massive transitions for us. And I said to the his principal, who is wonderful, I said, our goal is not actually to do any learning at school at the moment. That That's not our goal. <laughs> He's in grade five, by the way. That's not the goal. Our goal is to have minimal school refusal and to just get a uniform on in the morning and actually enjoy our morning before school. That's our goal. So if we do that and he comes to school, High five. If he's wearing the sports uniform on a formal day, I'm not bothered. Please don't ring me because that that was the adjustment we needed to make for his mental health <laughs> to be nurtured. Something that I realised, and this was only when I was listening to your podcast and I had this enormous realisation, I'm constantly advocating for my kids with people who should understand more the ability to meet our kids where they're at is what is important and that I think links really well into that podcast beyond the likes and that theory of like it is a roller coaster some days you need to sit on the floor and hug it out with them. And some days you can be outside doing whatever, or you could be inside enjoying reading a book. But if you're meeting your kids where you're at, that's where the value is. We can't always do that because we need to be at work at a certain time, or we need to, they need to be wearing this uniform, or they've got these classes and they forgot to charge their laptop. Or so we have all of these external pressures that fuck that up for us but I really think the true that the tack is to be able to meet people where they're at in this in the moment what whatever that moment is if it's in the morning does he need one morning he might need extra time one morning Millie might need me to brush her hair for her even though she's 12 that's fine because that, that's where she's at on that day. And what I realised when I was listening to, to your podcast was my nan has this incredible ability to meet everyone where they're at. And as a child, I used to spend the school holidays with them. They lived in Canberra and I lived in Melbourne. And I would spend the school holidays with them. And I don't, I have wonderful memories. But a lot of it is it was just great. 
it was just that I can't say one thing. I can't pick one thing. Everything just at Nan and Pops was, it was just unremarkable, but it felt great. And when I was listening last week, I it made me realise that it was because Nan just met me where I was at. She was the only person in my life that did that. I don't know how she facilitated that because she was a nurse working shift work. My pop worked shift work. There's 11 of us grandkids that she would look after. She cooked every meal. The house was spotless. I, I don't know how she facilitated it, but she did it exceptionally well. And it was last week that I realized that's, that's, how we need to do that some days that means you know high five for getting to school that's it yeah and look I you know what I think you've mentioned really well there is that whole a lot of us will say that we felt like a square peg in a round hole in life right and I felt like that a lot of us have felt like that where we don't fit in and it affects your self-esteem your self-hatred I don't know why I can't fit in when everyone else does I don't know why this is hard and the expectation from society to fit. But I think what you're referring to is stop expecting them to fit. So, and I think a diagnosis has been really important for my life because I look at my daughter particularly, who does really emotionally press my buttons because I want better for her. And I look at her and she's not particularly great at doing some things that are developmentally appropriate. But you know what? That's okay. And I look at her now with a new view And I'm like, of course she doesn't want to do that or she can't do that. It's not interesting. She wants to go and play on the street with a friend. She doesn't want to clean a room. She's looking for a dopamine hit and she'll go into the room and she'll try and I'll sit with her and she'll try and it's that understanding instead of going, well, you can't leave until you do this. And I just reflect back on my own life and I look, I feel into her and I'm like, she doesn't want to do that today. And sometimes you have better boundaries, sometimes you don't. And I think that's what you've really referred to beautifully where we, and this is again, what this podcast is about is let's not square peg to round holes to ourselves, our daughters and everyone around us. Let's just let them be who they are. And I think that's beautiful. I'm normalizing it. So Mm. we're not asking for an adjustment. Having adjustments should be the norm. As employers, we should be saying to our employees, what works best for you? In schools, we should not be having to fight, and fight is the right word. We've I've had a meeting nearly three times a week since term one for either Millie or Henry. That's a fight. We should not be fighting for things that support our children. These are not groundbreaking change the rooms and paint the walls changes that we're asking for. They're very minimal impact to everybody else but make an enormous difference to the child. And I finished off a meeting saying your lack of education and understanding should not be the reason why my child 
doesn't have adjustments. And that's where we're at. I couldn't agree with you more. I, uh, I'll try not to get try not to get too wound up, but my I changed my daughter's school this year. And one of the reasons, one of them, this sounds small, right, but this is reflective of them. This, this is a small example. It's not the only example. There's about 100,000 that I left, but this is an example. So she was diagnosed and we found she was having trouble concentrating. Surprise, surprise. So the inclusion teacher let her have some sensory toys. One, she was allowed to have one toy that she could play with if needed. So they had two teachers on, one for three days, one for two days. But basically, it was the small things that drove me mad. So they'd give her a sensory toy on one day, then the teacher would change over and they would yell at her and tell her off for having the sensory toy the next day. And I would end up just thinking, why is this so difficult? And I actually offered similar to get someone in to educate and, but then there's the other way of looking at it because you think of, okay, there's all these neurodiverse people in the world that have suddenly jumped out of nowhere, a lot of people would say, right? Mm. And then there's health professional teachers that are expected to cater to all of these unique differences with 30 kids sometimes, right? Multiple parents wanting slight variations that seem small mm-hmm. but are huge mm-hmm. for them to also cope with. There's research out there at the moment that's saying that a lot of teachers have ADHD. So they're also juggling their own, possibly, trying inattention to remember everything. And it's like there's so much pressure on the schools and the teachers. There's so much pressure from the parents, particularly to have their, their child live a different life, a better life. Mm-hmm. And there's so much pressure everywhere that I just wonder when it's going to break. I had that exact conversation you know I said we we cannot expect these teachers to be I don't expect them to be making 25 adjustments for Henry that is an unreasonable expectation as a parent for me to have so there are things that we can do at home to support what you're doing in the classroom consistency of terminology is something that we can help with you know changing schools Everything he knew from his old school is now out the window. And that was a barrier. (laughs) We're asking for this information and they're not giving it, but they have the same expectation that he's going to understand it. As parents, we are responsible for and we do advocate for our kids harder than anyone ever will. ADHD mums... (laughs) We're looking at parenting that child's needs and advocating for them at the same time, trying to go into this meeting, managing our own ADHD. (laughs) We call it squirrelling in our house when you start one conversation but five tangents and then you might come back, who knows, but if you start to squirrel. So how do I go into a meeting like this and not squirrel so I still get results because the whole reason I'm there is to advocate for my son but support the teachers and be mindful of that and you at this school for the next 12 years. So, you know, and again, that the ADHD mum plate, <laughs> the ADHD parent plate because there'd be a lot of dads that are in this as well but the ADHD parent plate is full up and full and probably doesn't enough enough noise enough support 
enough education. So I also work in the disability space. So 10 years ago, I started to think, wow, we really need to support these people. There's different ways we can do this. So navigating the NDIS is something that I'm really familiar with. So I was doing that before I was nursing. And so I have spent a long time advocating for these people. And when I was diagnosed, I actually didn't know how to advocate for myself <laughs> because of the self-loathing, self-esteem. I'm not worthy of needing an adjustment. People are going to think this of me if I ask for an adjustment. And that was really highlighted with my daughter. Again, in that I don't want her to feel like she's less because she's asking for something and really pushing that with both of the kids that it's not unreasonable for you to ask for the teacher to explain that three times and if they haven't and then you don't understand it, it's okay for you to ask them again and being 12, she will say stuff like, yeah, but I don't want to ask in the classroom no worries, send her an email. So how do we do that? We still, we don't stop needing the help just because we don't want to ask out loud. So then it's strategies of, of how can we still get the information that we need in a way that doesn't highlight our deficit. And it's tricky with navigating the NDIS because they work, it is such a model that only works on deficit. Where is the deficit? What will fix it? How much is it going to cost? Mm. And then, you know, ADHD is classed as a, a fixable condition now because you just take <laughs> medication and it's fixed is their thought pattern. Sorry yeah. to interrupt, but that, that kind of upsets me because it's actually a lifelong. And as soon as you run out of medication, which is incredibly hard to get, suddenly... Like the model is just sucks. It really sucks. It's so flawed. It's so flawed. And it I can appreciate that they're trying, but fuck, it's 2023. Do better. Like we're writing things like ambulant on a toilet door because we don't want to offend somebody who has difficulties with mobility. And we want to make it broad enough that they feel included. But we're saying we have a neurological condition that can be fixed if you've got a psychiatrist, if you can manage to get to your appointments on time, if you've got the money to get the medication because it costs more if you weren't diagnosed when you were a kid. So I'm having to pay a penalty because I wasn't diagnosed before I was 18. What the fuck? Like, oh, the system. <laughs> oh, I know you and I could go about the system. <laughs> but it is so not set up. Like this whole world is not set up. But again, if we think about why the podcast is here, if we can yeah. create enough noise, we might actually be able to have employers, schools, the world go, okay, Maybe we won't put on the bright flicking lights in the laser tag party because all of the children with ADHD and the parents are losing their mind. Like perhaps we can do things differently to create it so we can live more easily because until that happens, we're going to have deficits. 
Thank you so much, Chantel. It has been like talking to a kindred spirit. ADHD mums are the best. I always say I seek them out in my life and it feels like we've kind of had a bit of a coffee and a chat rather than an interview. Thank you so much for your openness and honesty.